of information. Uh, in it, we'll be going through the content for this evening. Uh, the second page, you got a front and back, which is the content we're going to be going through. Um, the second page and third, second, back of the second page, I should say. And then the uh, third page is going to be the verses that we'll be covering tonight. All of them are in there. We won't read them all, but uh, all of them are in there in case you want to consult them. And uh, you're more than welcome to also use your Bible. If you do have them and you want to uh, uh, use those, you can go to Second Kings chapter 6, which is where we're going to be starting uh, tonight. There's Kirsten Jenkins. We just prayed for Adeline. How is she? Okay. There. Okay. All right. So Adeline seems much better in good spirits. They're just taking precautions. So that's good. Um, so on the back of your packet, the very back, we have a chart that we're going to be filling out along the way. So basically we have a rough timeline. These, these years, just bear with us. These years are not given to us in scripture. They're based on, uh, just the evidence in the text. We're approximating the years that these Kings would have reigned and putting them in their locale. So over their kingdom. So on the left-hand side, you have the kingdom of Israel, which is comprised of the 10 northern tribes, Israel and Samaria being the capital city and all the, the 10 northern tribes. And then on the right, our right, being Judah, the kingdom of Judah, which would be the southern kingdom. That's, the, that's what would be considered the legitimate kingdom. That is the line through which David will be reigning. Uh, David's line will be going. And so um, the, the kings there you'll see pop up in the genealogy list of Jesus when we get to Matthew in the New Testament. That'll be in the southern kingdom. That's considered the legitimate kingdom. The southern kingdom also has the city of Jerusalem in it, which would be the Temple Mount, which is where people would legitimately worship. The northern kingdom, though it is established by God, and he has separated the kingdoms because of sin, the sin of, of Solomon first and then his son Rehoboam, um, he separated the kingdoms, and they separated under the reign of Rehoboam. Uh, even though he did that, the northern kingdom of Israel has been uh, wicked from the beginning. I mean, th there's really not... There's some kings that are less wicked than others, but they're virtually all wicked. They're kind of all down the tubes. And so in the middle, we have the prophets that are laid out there. We have prophets that are more targeted towards the northern kingdom, and then prophets that are going to be more targeted towards the southern kingdom. We're about to get into the first of the writing prophets with Obadiah and several others, uh, Joel, Amos. And so some of those, king, those prophets are not going necessarily to the north or south, but going to other countries. And so I'll mark those as we get to those, but we'll be filling the prophets out as we go. The hope is that by the end of this whole study, we'll not only be able to make sense of the timeline of Israel, but also to help conceptualize the prophets and specifically the writing prophets, and who they're writing to, why they're writing, who they originally addressed, and the historical context that they were in when they, you know, prophesied. You pick up the book of Obadiah, how many of you can just sort of cite all the verses of Obadiah? I mean, probably nobody, myself included. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult to remember the context that Obadiah is 
prophesying in or, or, or others for that matter. And so hopefully this will help to kind of sort some of that out, particularly as we get to think big prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those kinds. So that's kind of a rundown of the packet that you have in front of you, and some of it will be filling out along the way. But um, let's just take a, just a brief review of where we've been over the last uh, couple of weeks ago. And if you remember, we're in the middle of a run of miracles by Elisha. He has come onto the scene. He was anointed by Elijah. And the reason he was anointed, and it was stated very clearly to Elijah at the time, Elijah had just defeated the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and had basically killed all the prophets. And he was threatened by Jezebel within an inch of his life, really, if, if she said, you know, the, the Lord do so to me and more so if I don't kill you by this evening, do what you did to the prophets by this evening. And so Elijah was really frustrated by that. And he was really concerned, obviously, by that. And he takes off uh, fleeing, not so much out of fear, I don't think. I think more he's taking off because he's like, all right, Lord, what are we going to do? Let's blow this place up. I'm ready to burn this thing down. And, um, the Lord basically tells him uh, that here's what's going to happen. You're going to anoint Elisha to be your replacement. And he is going to anoint two other people that are going to come do damage to Ahab's house. And they're going to they're kill all of Ahab's house, which is Ahab is married to Jezebel. They're wicked. And so Ahab dies and his sons take the throne. And there's a, there's a bit of length between the time of God telling Elijah this is going to happen, Elijah anointing Elisha there in 1 Kings, and then going all this way through 2 Kings, and we won't get to the death of Ahab's house until like chapter 9 of 2 Kings and a little bit on from there. And so in the meantime, we get this little spot where Elisha really shines and where the author wants us to understand who Elisha is, what he's doing, and the nature of his ministry. And so when we get to 2 Kings chapter 4, we just begin uh, just consecutive stories, some of them very odd, of Elisha doing all of these miracles. And any one of them might stand out as pretty peculiar. Um, but one thing that we see is that there's this little group of people that follow him around. I think I'm not on the slide there, Robert. Can you click on it for me? There we go. So it's clear that there's this school of prophets that follow him around, and they're labeled in the text as the sons of the prophets. You might remember Amos says, I'm not a prophet, nor, the, nor one of the sons of the prophets. Uh, so he's saying, I'm not affiliated with Elisha or even the school of people that follow him around. There's this group of people that follow Elisha around. And originally they were formed, it seems, under Elijah. So it's like Elijah was the prophet. And then there were these kind of uh, apprentices of prophets, perhaps uh, uh, ministry interns, we might call them. They're learning to be prophets, and they apparently have uh, some sort of impact of prophecy in the area. And they're following Elijah around. Well, when Elisha comes around, and Elijah's about to be taken up, Elisha says, hey, I'm not leaving your side until you grant me a double portion of your ministry. And Elijah's like, hey, I, I don't I can't do that, but the Lord can. And here's what's going to happen. If you see me taken up, 
That means the Lord has given you a double portion of the spirit that he's put on me. If you don't see me taken up, then, well, so sorry, right? You don't get it. And so Elisha does see Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire, and he comes back across the Jordan. He slaps the Jordan River with Elijah's cloak that he leaves behind, and the waters part, and he walks across. And immediately, the school of the prophets realize, okay, what was Elijah is now Elisha. Elisha is the guy that we're apprenticing under, and so they do. And there's this little school that sort of follows him around, and they live in sort of this little monastic sort of setting where they, they actually are married, it seems, most of many of them. They have, a, a, it's like a commune, I guess, and we're going to see some more of that tonight. And so uh, they have a little housing project, I guess, that they live in, and, and uh, they do ministry out of it. And so Elisha has proven himself uh, to not only to the company of prophets that he is uh, Elijah's replacement, but then he also, right after he proves that to them, he uh, restores the waters of Jericho, which was a curse that Joshua had put on it. So immediately into Elisha's ministry, we're starting to see that there is a grander purpose in the Bible itself for Elisha's ministry. It's not just, here's a guy who does miracles, here's a guy who, who preaches and proclaims. There's some reversal of curses. There's some bringing in of God's kingdom and touching it down. When Joshua came in, remember they drove out uh, people out of the city of Jericho and Joshua cursed the water there and cursed, cursed everybody there. And uh, Elisha comes in and reverses that curse and restores the water there. And so where the king before had tried to uh, build a city there and lost his firstborn because of the curse Joshua put on the city, Elisha comes in and reverses some of that. So we're starting to see that his, his ministry actually has a kingdom kind of focus to it. He's bringing in the kingdom of God and he's restoring people's, uh, restoring blessing to people that were previously under cursing, which is what we really see coming in the New Testament with Jesus. But, but here it is touching the lives of people with Elisha coming in, and he, he's doing that. Then he also brings a curse to some children or perhaps young adolescent boys, as you can imagine, who call him bald. He uh, curses them by, by attacking them with she-bears, which is not at all weird and, and perfectly normal, um, But which is sort of a strange little story where he kind of, uh, some she-bears come out and maul them because they're being disrespectful uh, to the Lord's anointed. And um, you can imagine, uh, I, th I think it's really hard to understand that passage. I mean, just let's just own that. It's sort of strange. But if you think about the ministry of Elisha being the bearer, the point man of the kingdom of God coming in and demonstrating the power of God there for people, imagine the kind of punishment, the unrepentant who were physically there who physically spat upon Jesus, who physically drove nails in his hands. Imagine the kind of punishment that would be, or the severity of the punishment that would be brought to them. Similar, I think, is a situation where these kids are, are mocking Elisha. So uh, he's able to bring blessing and cursing, I think is the point of all that. And then there is a run of miracles where he uh, restores the fortunes of a widow who has lost her husband. She's about to be, her sons are about to be sold into slavery. And he 
bring, he basically rescues her from practically the dead is essentially the way that, that appears. And several other miracles. He restores uh, uh, life to a dead boy. He gives a leper back. Uh, he heals basically a leper by allowing him to be in the uh, river Jordan. Um, so he does all these miracles. And then third point of review, if I can get there. Robert, help me out. There it is. Um, The kingdom of Israel is then seen um, where it should be the mediator of God's kingdom to the nation. That's the point, right? They are told in Exodus 19 that they are to be a kingdom of priests. And what that means is not necessarily that they're all of the tribe of Levi, that they're all priests like that. But what that means is they're supposed to be a kingdom that help other nations understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and understand how to worship God. They are providing the access to God to the rest of the world. And they fail to do that. Why? Well, because in this context, in First and Second Kings, the northern kingdom is utterly wicked and the southern kingdom is struggling right along behind them. So there's, there's practically no real sense in which they can reverse the curse of the fall. So you can see how that prohibits them from being a kingdom of priests to the nations when they can't themselves get over the curse of the fall. And the whole Old Testament is really proving to us time and time again, yeah, you can't do it. You you don't have it within you to just reverse what happened when Adam took the bite, essentially. And so here is Elisha coming in, and he's giving those glimpses of what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And in the case of the northern kingdom, imagine this for just a second. Southern kingdom, you have Jerusalem, where you can go to the temple and you can worship the Lord there. The northern kingdom is cut off because the northern kings are so wicked that they've set up high places where you worship other gods. They've restricted access. They've built walls and things like that to keep people from getting down to the southern kingdom to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And so because they've done that, they've cut off their access to the Lord. Well, here comes Elisha, seemingly out of nowhere, anointed by the Lord to come in and bring the kingdom of God to the northern kingdom. You notice on the back of your packet, he's addressing the north primarily. And so here is Elisha coming out to mete out justice, to be some sense of a kinsman redeemer, a healer, and hope for the nations. Okay, so that brings us to our first passage for tonight, which is a miracle that, taken out of context, is super weird, and we're going we're gonna to read it right now. Let's, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse, verses 1 to 7. Now, some of the sons of the prophets, that's at school that's following Elisha around, said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us there, uh, get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one, of, as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. 
So he reached out his hand and took it. Now, here, here let me just encourage you for just a second. <laughs> if, if you're in your morning devotional and you just, you're playing Russian roulette with the pages of Scripture and you just let the Bible fall open and you just kind of put your finger on a spot and you just start reading there. Imagine your finger falling upon 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, and you start reading from 1 to 7, and that is your heartwarming message for the day. And it is about an, a guy chopping down a log and an axe head falling in a river and Elisha giving it back. And it's a miracle, and you, you look at that and go, well, axe heads don't float. But here, Elisha made it float. That's a miracle. The Lord blesses me. You close the Bible and you go about your day. It's probably not going to bless you that much. <laughs> I'm guessing. I've even had pastors, as we've just been talking about weird passages in Scripture, and they bring this one up, and they're like, you know, what's that doing there? I mean, occasionally, don't we ask that question? We get to a passage in Scripture, and we're like, we read it, and we just kind of go, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Like, why would you preserve that story other than to say, neat? Isn't that neat? <laughs> that's, not, that's not what it's doing there. All right, that's not why it's here. Um, there's a bigger purpose to this passage than, than I think would initially probably meet the eye. There's a couple of things. First, you, you got to understand. One is that here is a nation that has been completely cut off from God. And what do we see is happening to the sons of the prophets? They're growing. Their school is growing by such leaps and bounds that they can't fit into the place where they were previously dwelling. So they've got to build a bigger place to house them all. That's an incredible testimony to what God is doing in a vacuum. Think about that for a second. Picture North Korea, right? Elijah just dropped, or Elisha just drops down in the middle of North Korea out of nowhere, and all of a sudden there's a school of prophets that are growing up around him so much that Kim Jong-un is terrified of these people and just leaves them alone altogether because of miraculous things that are happening through the works of their hands, and he just sort of steps back, and this group is growing so big that now they've got to move to the river, and they've got to start building this huge compound for them to live in. The other thing that, to notice there is that they're going back to the Jordan, which is a big spot in Jewish history. It's the spot where this whole thing began with Joshua coming into the conquest, right? So essentially, they're sort of starting over. They're building this compound. They're coming into the, sort of metaphorically speaking, coming into the land, as it were. And here is this guy who, who is, has borrowed an axe. And he is, let me get to the next one. There it is. He's borrowed an axe, and he is felling a log, his log that he's going to chop up and make into his little log cabin out by the Jordan River, going to have a beautiful little seaside view or a little riverside view. Um, and in the middle of chopping down this tree, the axe head just goes flying off and lands right in the middle of a river. And who hasn't panicked when that's happened, you know, as all of a sudden I've lost my axe. And the worst part of this whole thing is it was borrowed, right? Well, what does that actually mean that it was borrowed? Well, I'll show you what it means. Look at Exodus 22, 14 to 15. If a man borrows anything from, of his neighbor and it, is, and it is injured or dies, you know, that could be an animal, but it could also be an axe head. In this case, the axe head died. The owner, not being with it, 
he shall make full restitution. The owner didn't die with it. Uh, if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came uh, for his, its hiring fee. Now, these are profits. They're not wealthy uh, at all. They're not buying houses. They're going out to build them and make them. So we take it that there's probably some poverty amongst them, and they're doing the best that they can. Well, what happens when you, uh, when you lose something that was borrowed which in that day, an axe would have been pretty expensive and pretty difficult to come by. So there's somebody who has been a blessing to this ministry by saying, oh, you're going to build cabins for yourself? Well, God bless you. Use my axe to do it. Just return it whenever. And he's felling this log and it goes flying in the river. And he's thinking to himself, if I can't pay that off, which I have no means of paying that off, I mean, I'm going to have to go into slavery which, what does that mean for someone who is a prophet who is then going to have to go into slavery? Well, he can't be doing prophecy anymore. He's going to be cleaning toilets or whatever. And so what is the significance then of Elisha throwing in a stick into a river and the axe head floating up to the top, but that he is redeeming this man from a debt of slavery that no doubt he is going to be going into? So for Elisha, uh, for, for at least the, as far as the text is concerned, Elisha is demonstrating himself here to be something of a kinsman redeemer. You've probably heard that term in connection to maybe Ruth, the, the book of Ruth before with Boaz being a kinsman redeemer. What that really means is someone who is sort of, you might say, buying somebody back from the dead. A near associate who is coming in to help the situation by taking this person from destitution, poverty, or even death, and restoring them to life. And here, Elisha is actually doing this for a person, for one of the prophets. He's redeeming him from a debt of slavery. Again, this is another, it, it's the miracles are continuing. So this is from all the way back to chapter 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7, the miracles are continuing through the hand of Elisha. And it's demonstrating that this man is the point person for the kingdom of God come in to deliver the northern kingdom by demonstrating that God is here to save you even when your king is so rebellious that he couldn't care less for you. So uh, he's a kinsman redeemer of sorts. That's actually going to play in big by the end of tonight. So just bear with me. Okay. Um, and then we get to this second episode that takes place in 2 Kings 6. 8 to 23, and I want to read that if we can, because I think some of these passages are funny, especially the way they're written. <laughs> um, <laughs> Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. The place is not important, apparently. But the man of God sent word, the man of God being Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not past this place for the Syrians are going down there. So just track with me. King of Syria has determined we're going to go down to such and such a place. And we're going to live. And Elisha, not being connected to this guy, sends word to the king of Israel, hey, don't go down there or the Syrians are going to whoop up on you. Okay. And verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God have told him, sends out spies. Thus he uh, used to warn him so that 
so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Right? He leaves the area, basically, doesn't go down there. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He thinks he's got a mole in his camp. Somebody's telling the king of Israel where we're going because he obviously knew. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. And he, and he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan, just down the road here in Alabama. So he sent, he sent their heroes and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with, with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed and the, uh, to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So very strange little turn of events here. And so you might read that. I can imagine in the morning and you kind of just your finger falls on six, eight through 23 and, and you get to the end and you're like, what a weird story. I don't know how that actually applies to me. Um, that seems a little bit, uh, well, it seems very interesting. Well, in this episode, we obviously see that the Syrians are very concerned that the nation of Israel has something of a secret weapon. And the king thinks that it's a, a mole inside the his own camp. Somebody's telling the king of Israel, where we're going, where we're headed, and telling him all of our positions so that he can get out of Dodge and can kind of jump us. Well, uh, I, I need to find out who it is. And, and the, his servant tells him, it's not a mole inside of our camp. Elisha knows your thoughts inside your bedroom. He, he knows what's going on. The Lord's telling him all these things. He's their secret weapon. And so they go, obviously, to seize him. And then it, it, it's a very strange turn of events because there's a lot of blindness that appears in this passage. The first is the blindness of the servant who is afraid. He doesn't understand that there are angels and an army of the Lord that is with Elisha who are able to do untold things on behalf of Elisha. 
and behalf of the children, the children of God. And so Elisha first prays that his eyes would be open. And obviously his eyes are open and he's able to see uh, the army of the Lord that's around him. And then the, as the army marches in, as the, the opposing army marches in, uh, they, they, uh, he prays that they would be blinded. And so they're blinded. Uh, the Lord blinds them with his army, I suppose, but takes away their sight. And they pause for a second because they're freaking out. Who, who knows what to do now that we've all been struck with blindness? And so Elisha says, look, here's, I'll lead you where you want to be. And where does he lead them? But the middle of the capital city where all the military of Israel is, which is, that's not where they want to be, right? That's not where they want. They want to be doing these little raids around in these little towns around the nation of Israel, which it says by the end, that's, they'd stop doing that after this was over. And so they wake up, they open their eyes to blindness. Again, it's reversed. And they see, oh no, we're in the midst of Samaria. We do not want to be here. We are outnumbered. And so the king of Israel says, we're not really told who it is, but we, we see that the king of Israel says, should I kill him now? Should I take our armies and overwhelm them and kill them? And Elisha says, no, 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 we're going to do this a little bit different. We're going to do this kingdom of God style. And what is kingdom of God style? He welcomes them to his banqueting table and gives them a feast and basically says, now go away. <laughs> Which <laughs> is not the way I'd recommend winning, winning a war. <laughs> but, but it is an unconventional method, of course. But they sit down and they enjoy a feast and the war is ended and there's resolution. What is significant about the war ending this way? What does God bring to his people but peace? The kingdom of God is something that restores peace. So here is Elisha reversing even the curse of war brought about by two sinful nations, Israel on one hand, who is obviously sinful and ready to go to war, kings ready to kill at a moment's notice, and here is the Syrian army coming in and ready to do battle as well. Both of them are there on the battlefield because of sin, precisely because of the fall, and God instead prepares a banqueting table with his point man, Elisha, who says, this is how God does things. He restores peace where there is conflict. And here the kingdom of God is coming in through Elisha to restore peace where there was no peace. So interesting, right? So now we're looking at these two passages where previously perhaps you would, re you would have read them and gone, ah, when you think about them in context to what's actually happening, they actually make a pretty profound point, and they're building an even bigger point. So now we get uh, an unspecified amount of time has passed, and another of the Syrian army decides, look, here we're going um, to go and attack again. And so here is Ben-Hadad coming in to mount an attack. Let's look at 2 Kings 6, 24 to 33. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Boy, they were getting ripped off for their doves done. I mean, look at that. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, it's pretty disgusting, bear with me for a second. 
help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now, uh, uh, tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his uh, uh, beneath on his body. And he said, "May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today." Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent, uh, has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer? All right, let's hold right there because there's more to this story. But that's weird. And kind of the way it's, it's even written is not entirely easy to understand. First, let's go back to the beginning of it. There is another attack uh, from the Syrian army as they besiege this time Samaria. Um, which is the capital city, and they had in the previous passage been attacking little towns, and they resolved not to do that anymore. Now they're they're trying to take on the the, the big whale. Um, so an un, unspecified amount of time has passed. Maybe this is some years, and we, maybe even we have a new king. But for sure, Ben Hadad is on the throne by this point, and they decide to attack uh, um, Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And in doing so, they've sort of cut off its supplies. It seems. Uh, perhaps some of this is they don't have rain and that's where the famine is but the, and the rain has restricted the crop growth and all those kinds of things like a typical famine but probably also they've cut off supplies into Israel so there's no water that can get in they've kind of cut that off and very similar to what we see with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Rome comes in and attacks the temple and tears it down we have here uh, such devastation that it's bringing about some really terrible consequences so much that a donkey's head, I mean, I don't know if you've ever priced a donkey's head or tried to buy donkeys, a donkey's head, um, certainly to eat here, if you can imagine, um, is really expensive. So people can't even afford it. And then dove's dung, could be dove's dung, could also be beans. It's, <laughs> I know this seems like two completely different things, and, and it is. But uh, but we don't know which one exactly it is. But the ESV has dove dung here, and so we're going to stick with dove dung. But anyway, dove dung is uh, is also very expensive. There's thought that maybe they use that for salt on their donkey head <laughs> whenever they whenever they ate it. I don't know. Uh, I really don't know uh, what what that is. But uh, I think it was Josephus that said maybe it was dove dung. There's a lot of people even way back in the day that have no idea what this is referring to. But the point is, the things that were minuscule in their society were now really expensive and awful. 
And what does the king do after he kind of sees how awful this is? Well, he's walking along um, the wall, which is where a lot of the people congregate. And we have this awful story of uh, cannibalism where, uh, and we have a very similar story actually in 70 AD where something very similar happened. But um, this, uh, you know, this, these women make up a a deal where they're so starving that they decide to eat their own children. Uh, If you can imagine, that's a very terrible story. But um, the point is that the king at this point sees how utterly devastated this is. And what is the point of the fact that he tears his clothes? That's a sign of, of weeping or of remorse or mourning. He tears his clothes and they see that he has sackcloth underneath, which is a sign of, of fasting. So not only is the king in utter devastation, but he's been in devastation for some time. The idea was you wear sackcloth next to your skin. It's an irritant and it kind of reminds you to pray. It, it sort of reminds you of just how bad the situation is. You're aggravating your own skin just to remind you how terrible of a situation you're in. Does that, that make sense? And it kind of urges you to pray. And so the king has obviously been in prayer to the Lord and nothing has happened. That's a really important point. He's in prayer to the Lord and nothing has happened. In fact, it's gotten far worse to the point where his own people are eating their children. And so then we get something from Elisha. The, 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 he, want, he sees the guy coming. He knows he's coming to kill him. And he says to his servants, hey, Katie, bar the door. And before they can get to the door, the guy marches in and is like, give me some resolution, basically. It's kind of what's going on. So in verse one of chapter seven, he said, but Elisha said in response to him, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour, fine flour is a fine flour will be sold for a shekel, really cheap. That's really cheap. And two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. That's in the heart of the city that's been cut off from supplies. He's saying, all this is going to be really cheap tomorrow. Tomorrow? I don't know if you know much about famines. That can't be reversed in a day, can it? And so then the captain uh, is thinking the same thing I am. The captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Uh Uh-oh. So he tells him, look, tomorrow this is going to be the case. And the guy's like, wait a second. Even if the Lord opened up heaven and just rained down manna or the fine flour, how could we possibly end this kind of famine? Or if he opened the storehouses of heaven and all the rain poured out on the earth, it would still take a whole season to grow crops. There's no way that we can have fine flour by tomorrow in such plentiful supply that it would reverse all of this. That's impossible. Unless you're Elisha, who is the point man for the kingdom of God, bringing and restoring blessing to the land of Israel, right? So Elisha tells him, you want to doubt? Okay. Well, you'll see it, but you're not going to taste of it, meaning you're going to die. Right. So we get down to Second uh, uh, Kings 7, 3 to 11, and I just love this story. So this part of the story anyway. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, you can picture this in just a comedy, like a, a comedy movie, uh, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. 
if we, if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, they have plentiful supply. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the, Lord, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses. This is that army of the Lord, the angelic army of the Lord. Sound of chariots and horses and the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egypt, kings of the Egypt, of, of, of Egypt to come against uh, us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it. They become like the Grinch who stole Christmas. They just go through and leave crumbs much too small for the other whose mouths. And so they carried them off and they hid them. And then in verse 9, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. When conviction hits their heart. This day is a day of good news. This is the gospel has come. The good news of the gospel has come. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was none to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's, within the king's household. So we've got four lepers that, uh, that, kind of muster up the courage and they're like look why are we just going to sit here and die let's go take our chances with the syrians and see what happens if they kill us well fine they put us out of our misery we've got leprosy anyway (laughs) but if we stay here we're just going to die and if we go into the city we're going to die so we might as well take it you know strike out and see if we can get some luck on our side well it was actually the Lord's fortune who he's, I mean, obviously he had sovereignly prepared these four lepers to go into the city and be the ones that proclaim the good news to the king's household. Isn't this just like the Lord to send lepers to proclaim the good news? So here they are, they come into the camp. The Syrians are gone because they, the Lord's caused a thundering herd to be sound in their ears so that they think an army is coming. So they leave and they leave all their fine flour and all their donkeys. They leave all their food, their gold, everything. They just take off. And here are these lepers who are like, we're rich. And they begin collecting all this stuff. And then they realize, we need to tell everybody in Syria that there is a great victory that's been had here And they go and tell the good news. And so what is the result of that? We find out in 12 to 16. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They don't believe the the lepers. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing those who are left here will will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they send out spies. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent uh, them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. 
So they went and after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. How does he reverse the curse by the word of Elisha? But he um, makes the food cheap because they've found a plentiful supply in the Syrians. He defeated the Syrian army who was cutting off the supplies so that all of the stuff became cheap. Now, what happens to this little guy who doubted? Well, we find him in the next verse in 17. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. People get word of the good news, and it is their excitement over the good news that ends up trampling this guy to death as they're trying to leave the city to gain access to this fine flower. So what is the point that the author actually makes there about this? It's that the servant did not believe the word of the one who bears the kingdom of God. And what happens to those who are the bearers of who, who hear the word of good news proclaimed by the bearers of the of his kingdom and do not believe it? Well, then they're trampled in the gate, and now metaphorically trampled in the gate. We're, we'll see even this Sunday they're thrown into the lake of fire. There's, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you get food on the cheap, and you get the servant who disbelieved the man of God being crushed to death by a hungry mob. Now, let's think about this for just a second because this sort of brings us to the kind of the end, really, of this string of Elisha's miracles. We're going to see you another one next chapter, but mostly we're starting to get into now where God is delivering judgment to the nation of Israel who's been wicked and disobedient. And so what is the significance of Elisha here in this story? We find out in the New Testament something very odd has happened, and John the Baptist has been imprisoned. Remember this? John went to the king uh, at the time, Herod, who was doing some really bad things, and he was preaching against what Herod was doing. And so Herod had him seized and put in prison. He had taken his brother's wife is essentially what was the, the problem. Herod took him and threw him in prison. And John, who, has, who had been a minister of God's kingdom, had been a prophet. The prophet that was told to us would be like Elijah. The one who would come, proclaim the kingdom of God, and be the forebearer to the Messiah. John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and he sat there for so long, he's begun to doubt. And he's be- as you can imagine despair overcomes you. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. They ask him whether or not 
he is the one who is to come. Or they say, should we wait for another? And Jesus responds to them in a very weird way. It seems weird in the text, unless you are familiar with 2 Kings 4 to 8. In which case, Jesus says, he answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. Remember 2 Kings 6? Blindness, sight, blindness, sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Remember 2 Kings 5, Naaman gets in the waters and the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Remember 2 Kings 4, and the poor have good news preached to them. Who follows Elijah? Elisha. So, what is happening here, but that Jesus is telling John, Elijah's successor has come. Jesus intentionally moves through the land of Israel, who is trapped in utter darkness, who is cut off from the righteousness of God, who do not have good news preached to them. He comes in as they're under the snare of the leaders in Israel who are restricting their worship in the temple, not praying as they should, but turning it into a marketplace. And Jesus comes into the midst of that and says, I'm Elisha. I'm coming following Elijah. John knows all well that he is Elijah. Jesus even tells the disciples as he's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they ask him the question, why do the Pharisees and all of them teach that, the, that Elijah must come first before the Messiah comes? We, we haven't seen Elijah. And he says, well, Elijah does come. And he's already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted to. And of course, the narrator makes the point there. He was talking about John the Baptist. John knows that he's Elijah, that he's the one that has been prophesied in the book of Malachi that's coming before the Messiah comes, the one paving the way, preparing the way of the Lord. And, Eli and, and now Jesus is telling Elijah, who's in prison, I'm Elisha. Elisha's ministry has been given to me. I'm doing exactly what Elisha was doing. So when we look back at 2 Kings 4 to 8, or 4 through 7, we see what Elisha's ministry is really comprised of. But it points us forward to Jesus who would come and do a very similar thing. So it's almost as if, and I would say this is exactly what it is, God has ordered all of these events wickedness even of Israel, to bring Elisha in as a forebearer to Christ to come. The same way that he gave them the Passover meal, that would be a forebearer to Christ, that would teach them what it means to have provision in that way, that he would bring about the lamb without blemish that would be brought to the altar and sacrificed for their sins so they could understand what atonement is. The same way that he brought all of those things about, all those holidays and feasts and festivals, so he has also ordered history through the Old Testament to ultimately bring about one day when Christ would come and be the ultimate fulfillment of all of those things. Questions?
either that was like super confusing or abundantly clear. <laughs> you never can't tell which one it was. <laughs> Questions? Things I can... Well, yeah, it seems, it seems as though when the Gentiles are brought into the situation, that's with intention. Um, even in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that as well. The Gentiles brought to the table, signifying what's going to happen by the end of the book. Luke even clues us into that. Here in 2 Kings, I can't help but think same way. Uh, 2 Kings 5, when Naaman comes from out of town, as a Gentile comes and cleansed in the, in the river, he's also receiving a blessing of the kingdom of God. Anytime we see the Gentiles receiving a blessing of the kingdom of God, you can't help but say that's also a foreshadowing of what is ultimately to come in Christ, who would bring about fulfillment not only in the land of Israel, but also, as we know, to the Gentile. You know, yeah, absolutely. So, you see, that, that changes the quiet time a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, when you read it that way, when you think about it in context, and so if I can make just a pitch for uh, expositional preaching um, and expositionally taking Scripture. What that means is we go through Scripture verse by verse, line by line. Sometimes lines in Scripture, paragraphs in Scripture, little stories in Scripture seem like they're just thrown in there for dramatic effect so that you walk away going, well, isn't that neat? I guess that was all I was supposed to see is that that's a pretty cool thing that took place. But when you zoom out and you look at the, the events in connection to one another and you think about it for just a second, you can begin to see this picture emerge of what the author that wrote that down is actually doing in the text. He's actually put those stories in there for a reason, not just to wow you. Certainly there's some of that, but not just to wow you. It's to make a point about something. The way we go through Matthew is slow. You know, we've gone through, it's taken, it's taken me, I uh, started it six, six months into my time here, which was almost four years ago. So, uh, so about three and a half years, it's taken us to really go through Matthew. And that's with intention because each paragraph, each little section has a purpose for which Matthew put it in there. And our job is not just to preach whatever we want or teach whatever we want, but it's to figure out why he included that. What he would be saying to us is the point of that story and preach that to everyone. And through that, that's where Paul says, look, every word of scripture is breathed out by God's prophet for teaching and reproof and correction that the man of God, woman of God may be trained in righteousness. That's how that happens, is when we take the point of that text and give that to people. And in your quiet times, in your morning devotionals, you can do that too. Sometimes you may need help. I need help. Get a little book to go along from a good commentator or something like that. You can always send me an email or text or whatever, and I'll maybe point you in the right direction of a couple of good ones, you know, that can be on varying levels. If you want something super deep or if you want something that's just kind of devotional, that's great. You know, you can have those. And sometimes they point you in the right direction, help you understand the point of that text. That's what we're striving for in the morning. When we open the Bibles, that's what we're going for. It's not just reading it going, isn't that neat? But what is that here for? 
why, why did he tell me about a floating axe head? You know, I want to understand this in the broader picture because that's where we start to go. God's doing something in the Old Testament and the New that's, that's far more profound than I'd ever imagined. He was. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. <That's, laughs> he, he said parallel between Jesus being born in the Jordan River and the axe head and the iron shows the irony between the two. <laughs> so uh, it's very punny. <laughs> I enjoy a good pun. My family kids me because I'm the king of dad jokes. So. <laughs> yeah. Any other, any questions? All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to read your word. Uh, thank you for the ministry of Elisha and the preservation of the word in 2 Kings 4 to 7. I'm so grateful for the significance of these events being laid out for us the way they were. Um, it's very obvious that this is not chronological necessarily, or um, that that wasn't the intent that, that we're seeing here, something profound that you have done throughout history. And what that does inside my heart in uh, hopefully inside all of ours is enlarge it in worship and adoration of you. Having preserved your word to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, but to demonstrate your love for your people in that we're trapped in darkness and yet you sent to them the light of your kingdom that they may be saved and that they may be rescued from darkness. And we cannot help but reflect on Christ, who has done that for us in spades. We have found our redemption in Christ. And may we all in this body be settled on that fact as we discover it in your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all online. Hope We're here. See y'all next week. Bye. Bye.